often for us to think and to say, God is love. And it might not be even surprising if you went up to someone and said to them, God loves you. But why, why should that not be surprising? Many of us are not that easy to love. And if we have a hard time loving each other, why do we think it's so easy for God to love us? Resurrection Sunday is the most jubilant Sunday in the church calendar. For the Christian knows that without the resurrection, we would still be dead in our sins. And God would still be angry with us. And there would be no cause for songs of rejoicing. This Resurrection Sunday, as we consider the implications of the resurrection, we will turn to the gospel according to Isaiah to see also the right response to the good news that God has turned away his anger from us. The good news that on the cross, Christ had turned away the anger of God. The good news that on that day, when Christ was raised from the dead, we were comforted. The right response to that good news is, of course, thanksgiving. Singing the songs of our salvation to the Lord our God. Since the resurrection of Christ turned away God's anger that he might comfort us, we must respond with joyful songs of praise. So if you have a Bible or uh, there's one in the seat in front of you, the Pew Bible, we're going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One, of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we give you thanks that you have comforted us in the resurrection of your Son, that in him you have turned away your anger from us. You have accepted us as beloved in your sight. We lift up our hearts in praise and worship to you to adore your mighty works. And may we make them known to the nations, even as we hear them this morning. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, and amen. You will say in that day, had we been working our way through Isaiah, we would have seen this expression over and over again, on that day. And if we traced out what Isaiah is uh, describing, we would get a twofold picture. We would get a picture of God's judgment because of their idolatry on that day. I will send enemies, the nations around you, to come and take you captive. But you would also see another picture. You would see a picture of blessing. 
on that day I would raise up the branch of David, and out of his root a son will come. So we get a picture of judgment and blessing on that day, the great day of the Lord. Forty-two times Isaiah uses that expression to describe a day of judgment and a day of blessing. It's a day when uh, both of those things would be combined. But how can that be? How can we have a day that we should look forward to that is a day of judgment and of blessing? Israel, of course, would not understand that until much later when Jesus, as the new Israel, retells the story of Israel in his own life, in his own judgment for sin on the cross, in his death, and the day of blessing in his resurrection from the grave. Just as the cross, it can't be good news unless an empty grave is at the end. So also you cannot have the resurrection unless you first have a bloodied cross. You see, the good news of the gospel contains both judgment and blessing. And it is the good news that in Jesus, the anger of God has been turned away and we have been comforted through his resurrection. Why exactly, though, is God angry? And what turns his anger away are the events that lay behind this song, this song that Isaiah, the prophet, declares to the people of Israel that they will sing on that day, that great day of resurrection. And behind this song of rejoicing are the definitive events of the Passion Week, which because of their singular significance in history, we can call that day. The very middle of history is the most important event that has ever happened. In his seminal work on on the incarnation of the word, the early church father, Athanasius, he imagines a dilemma uh, that God faces of which only Christ can come and overcome. Now, I say imagines because it was never a dilemma for God. He has planned the end from the very beginning. But for us, it seems like a dilemma. The dilemma God faced was how to overcome the corruption that had come into the world because of sin and at the same time be true to his promise to Adam that on the day that he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would die. How could God save his creation from sin without breaking his word that he had given to Adam? The the answer, of course, was the sending of his son to deal with both. He would take the corruption of sin on himself and die for it. But because he was also God, he had the power to overcome death. It was his death on the cross that turns away the anger of God and his resurrection on the third day that he might comfort us. And this movement from anger to comfort, from wrath to grace is the movement from death to life in Jesus on that day. It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ that brings us comfort. Comfort that forms the basis of our songs of salvation, both as individuals and as a community. That day is the day of his resurrection. The Lord's day, which continues every first day of the week to be 
a commemoration of his resurrection and a remembrance of it. So not, not just on Easter, but every Sunday is a celebration of that day. If the resurrection is the comfort that God's anger has been turned away, the comfort that his wrath has been propitiated, that's what it means to be turned away, directed away from us. If that is the case, what is the response that we as individual sinners should make to that salvation? The prophet lays out a script to guide both the individual in verses 1 through 2 and the community in verses 4 and 5. But even the community with its diversity of voices is unified as one in the inhabitant of Zion in verse 6. And as we examine more closely our our various responses to the comfort of God and our salvation, we'll we'll shed more light on the nature of the good news of Jesus' resurrection. So I want to look first this morning at our individual response to the resurrection of Christ. You'll notice, and many of your translations will highlight this for you, that in verse 1, the you there is singular. He is speaking to the individual. And in in verse 3, it changes to the plural. With joy, you all, like in good Texas, you all will draw water from the wells of salvation. But the first two verses, he is addressing the individual. How do you, how do you who have received comfort because God has turned away his anger, how do you respond? How is our individual response to be shaped by the good news of the gospel? And we notice right off, In verse 2, that there are four characteristics that mark the person who has received this good news. They trust in God. They have no fear because God is their strength and because God is their song. So I want to look just briefly at these characteristics and draw out what it looks like to be a worshiper who has received comfort from God in his resurrection. If you were to ask someone, what is the most fundamental truth about all Christians, and that's that they believe. They have faith. They trust. It would be that they trust in God. The faith is the bedrock of our salvation, not because of wishful thinking we make a fantasy true, but because we believe in God's promises. The faith is not blind or irrational. Rather, it's based on the evidence of God's love and grace of course, demonstrated most clearly in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Trust is the most essential ingredient in saving faith. What greater honor can we give God than to believe that he is trustworthy? But notice that that trust also dispels fear. I will trust and will not be afraid. Because we trust in the Lord, we will not Be afraid. When you make the Lord the bedrock of your faith, you can say, what can man do to me? If the sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth is on your side, then you know nothing can befall you but what he has designed for your good. The great southern Confederate general Stonewall Jackson once once was asked how he could be so unafraid in battle. He got that uh, nicknamed Stonewall because he just stood there on his horse and bullets are 
flying all around him. Somebody asked him, he took him aside, and they say, how do, you, how do you have that kind of confidence, that kind of courage? And he said, son, my, my religion teaches me that my sovereign Lord has determined the day of my death already. And I don't need to worry about that. So he teaches me that I'm, I'm as safe in bed as I am in battle. Nothing can take me before my time. And if that's my time, then I'm ready. That's the kind of attitude of somebody who trusts in God and will not be afraid. He's fearless in the face of death because he trusts in the Lord. And what need for fear when when God is our strength? Notice, for the Lord, God is my strength. The sovereign Lord is my strength and my song. When you make, when, when God is uh, your trust is in God and you have no fear. The, the righteous can confess that God is their strength in two ways. First, because the very nature of who God is. He is the almighty God, commander of the hosts of heaven who has all power and strength and wisdom at his disposal. I mean, just imagine if your general that you are serving under has everything under his control. He has, can speak and a whole host of angels can come. Why would you ever be afraid? Why would, you, why would you not press forward in battle if you knew that that was who you were serving with? See, we become cynical when we, when we look out at the world in rebellion against God and we think, we start to allow that thought to creep into our mind that maybe God isn't in control. Maybe somebody else is in control. Maybe he's struggling to have control. And if that's the case, if, if God is not in control and he's not sovereign over the events that are taking place on our daily news, then how on earth would we ever draw our strength from him? So we hesitate like Israel. You remember before they, they went into the promised land, they received the report from the spies and Ten of the spies says, yes, the land is great, but there's giants. And we're little. We're a small people. These people have fortified cities. And there are two of them that say, that's not a problem for our God. And they go and they fight. That's because God is their strength. They are deriving their strength from him because of who he is. Secondly, God is our strength in the sense that we We derive our strength from him. He causes his spirit to indwell us so that by his power, we may accomplish his purposes. Not I, but through Christ in me, as the song says. Paul says in Romans 8, 11, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The strength by which Christ rose from the dead is also at work in you to bring you life, to conquer your enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to equip you to do every good word and work. In Christ, we can tread down our enemies. In Christ, we, one of you will put a thousand to flight. Why? Because God is your strength. God is also our song. What's on your playlist? What soundtrack are you living your life to? 
We all have them, right? For us who have received the greatest news that in Christ, God's anger has been turned away and we've been comforted. What greater song can we sing? Paul exhorts us to teach and admonish each other by, by singing to one another. Colossians three sixteen. I'm certainly not against popular music per se, but, but if the Psalms don't occupy a chief place in your playlist, if the hymns and spiritual songs don't make it on there, then is God really your song? There are some very, very creative people who are setting the Psalms to virtually every genre. Classical, choral, folk, bluegrass, even hip-hop. All set the Psalms to music so that they can become our song. So that God can be with us as we think and remember His mighty deeds, rehearsing them through music. Music has a phenomenal way of helping us to remember, to evoke emotions, to bring out praise and adoration. It stirs us in ways that other, other modes don't. And we're going to talk more about that when we talk about the community's response in a moment. And notice that at the end of this, that the, the song, the song that this individual who has received comfort from God because God's anger has been turned away, who responds by saying, I will trust and I will not be afraid. God is my strength and my song He has become my salvation. And if God has become your salvation, then the right response is ultimately to trust in God and not be afraid. If God has become your salvation, then He is your strength. He is the one you run to and the one who strengthens you in times of need. If God has become your salvation, then He is your song. He is the soundtrack that you live your life to. You see, God has become your salvation if his anger has been turned away from you through the death of his son on your behalf. So that in that he might turn and comfort you through his resurrection from the dead. He has become your salvation if you trust that that is true for you. That in Christ you died and rose again. Amen? One commentator said, To enter salvation is an individual experience, but to enjoy it is communal. If you are united to Christ in his death and and resurrection, you are united to every other individual who all together makes up his body, the church. So it is to the community that the prophet turns next to outline the proper response of the community to that day of God's salvation. Notice in verse 3, With joy, you all, in the plural, you as a community will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you all will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Notice that he's speaking to the community and he says, with joy you will draw water from the wells. He is, the prophet means you will avail yourself of all of the ordinary means of grace. The means by which God not only brings salvation, but he sustains it and strengthens it. 
It's through his word and sacraments and prayer and the communion of saints that the people of God draw water from the wells of salvation. The Lord dispenses salvation through his means. Would you be so bold as to think you don't need those means? Some think they only need to attend worship on Easter, you know, for mom's sake. But imagine if you treated your need for water that way. I challenge you, do not drink another glass of water until next Easter. Nurses, help me out. How many days do we got? Just a few days. You will die. Yet you think you can keep away from the word and sacraments for months and months. You think you will be fine without prayer, without the people of God coming alongside of you? You are not and you will not be. It may be because God has not become your salvation. And I dare say this might be because you have not felt the comfort of God in knowing that his anger has been turned away. But I pray that today might be that day. That day that you realize God is no longer angry with you, but he comforts you in the resurrection of his son. To all those who have already trusted in God, he is your strength and your song and has become your salvation. Then I say to you, do you make use of the means of grace? Are you daily coming to the fountain of living waters to drink from the rivers of his delight? Husbands, are you washing your wife with his word? Are you taking your children to the fount to drink daily? Is family worship a daily priority? Do you see it as the most important moment of your day? Or is it something hurried over so you can get on to more important things? Even if your children are grown and gone, are you as a couple coming together and reading the word of God and praying together? Families, we should be welcoming singles into your home as often as you can. Singles, those who have the gift of celibacy, you should be intentional about being part of the broader family of faith. Maybe there is a family here who would be delighted for you to join them in their daily family worship or around their table. We need to foster these kinds of intentional communities where faith is formed, where we are with joy drawing water from the wells of salvation. Dear saints, is is the Lord's Day the crown jewel of your week? Do you prepare your heart to come and gather with the saints to worship your king? Does everything you do flow out of your worship of God on the Lord's Day? Is that what, where you get your strength for Monday morning? Or are you loath to waste vacation time and will use the weekends for your own ends? Maybe even not, maybe even skipping the Lord's Day. Do you make sure that this is the most important thing that you can prioritize in your week? That there is nothing better than for you to come and to be with God's people, to lift up your voice in praise and to worship the one who has taken away God's wrath and comforted you in his son. And if that's not the most important thing in your life, then my friend, you are still under the anger of God. See, we lack the discipline and determination to draw water from the wells of salvation, to avail ourselves 
of the ordinary means of grace, primarily because we have not let the resurrection of Jesus Christ occupy the place of the greatest importance in our lives. If you are the one that God was angry with, but now because of Christ, Jesus is anger, God's anger has been turned away. How would you not spare all expenses and make every effort to use every means God has given you to draw water from the wells of salvation? The truth is you would, you would do it joyfully. Why? Because one time you were God's enemy, but now you are his friend. And nothing could keep you from coming to him to strengthen that bond, to receive more of that comfort. Is that not true? There is more to this joy-filled response to God's salvation. I want to briefly draw your attention to three things that mark this community of faith. Gratitude, worship, and proclamation. The prophet exhorts the community to give thanks to the Lord. And this, of course, seems obvious. If you have experienced salvation where God is no longer angry with you, but has comforted you, the obvious response is thanksgiving. But gratitude might be the most difficult thing for our current cultural moment. Because we live in in an age of entitlement. It is hard to feel grateful for something you feel is owed to you. I encounter this a lot in young men. But there is this air about them that life has not been fair because they have not been given what they feel they are deserved, they owed. The idea that you must work for something has become a foreign concept. And no wonder when everyone got a trophy and, and equality was preached at such a high pitch. And our kids, they feel entitled. And you cannot understand the gospel unless you understand that God was angry with you. Young people in the church have developed this view of God which has reduced him to little more than a divine butler. He is there when they need him only to get them out of trouble. He will reward anyone who is nice and is not mean because that's the greatest commandment. Thou shalt be nice. But he cares very little about the day-to-day events of our lives. He certainly does not care who we sleep with. Holiness is a foreign concept because sin has been reduced to brokenness. You are broken, but you are broken because you are in rebellion against God. Your sin makes you God's enemy, and unless something is done about it, you will remain his enemy for all of eternity. Everyone does not get a trophy. If that's new to you, read the Bible. What marks the true community of faith is gratitude. Gratitude because we know, we know there was nothing I could have done to turn away God's anger. I needed somebody else to come and to take my place so that I can receive the comfort that comes from God only. And Jesus is that one who came and he stood right in your place. And he became that innocent sufferer. That person who knew no sin. Who had never once in his life displeased his father. Who had done anything wrong. He came and he said, I love you. I'm going to take your place. I'm going to stand right where you deserve to stand. And I'm going to take all the anger of God on myself. 
so that you can be forgiven, so that you can be reconciled no longer to be God's enemy, but you can be at peace with Him so that God can turn and comfort you. And He did that in His resurrection. Because by the power of an incorruptible life, He rose again from the dead. And God vindicated Him. God said, I accept that. What my son just did, I accept that on your behalf. And guess what? You get off scot-free. No condemnation. Not guilty is the declaration read over your name. And that's the comfort of God. That's when God turns and comforts you through the death and through the resurrection of your son, of his son. And we cannot... We cannot cultivate gratitude as a community without a sober assessment of sin. I say you will know a true community of faith by the way that they speak about themselves and by the way that they speak about the God of their salvation. If, if your sin is great and God has overcome it, then God is greater. The way that you speak about your sin, the way that will shape inevitably the way that you speak about God. And you cannot have gratitude as a community if you do not understand the holiness and the severity of his judgment against sin. Then you can be grateful. Then you can respond by giving thanks to the Lord for what he has done. A community of thanksgiving is a community that calls on the name of the Lord. And this, this phrase is a, is a part that stands in for the whole. It's, it's it, calling on the name of the Lord is, a, is a, the worship that the community offers to God. To direct our prayers to him by means we depend on him. To call on his name means to acknowledge that he is sovereign and he has the ability to intervene. Central to any community of faith must be the worship of God. We gather to worship to call on the name of the Lord. And thirdly, the Apostle Paul tells us that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 13, but he continues in verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Just as gratitude and worship are hallmarks of the community of faith, so also is proclamation. We are called as a community to make known his deeds among the peoples, to proclaim that his name is exalted. Verse 4. What are the deeds that we as a community are to make known? The life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we call the gospel, and that's what we're called to make known to the nations. We publish that good news far and wide. That God's anger has been removed and he has comforted us. So churches that gather all throughout the world this morning and will gather later in the day and some have already gathered. They're marked by this same three things. They gather to worship the one who is making all things new. They gather to hear of his mighty deeds and they gather with grateful hearts to express joy-filled praise, shouting and singing because God is in their midst. Because God the Son, who took on flesh and dwelt among us, is by his Spirit present 
with his people. And this call to respond with songs of our salvation ends in verse 6 with a singular woman, the inhabitant of Zion, who is commanded to sing for joy. But who is this singular woman? Commanded to sing with joy. She's none other than the bride of Christ, the church, the heavenly Jerusalem. She is the spotless bride prepared for her husband. The Apostle John sees a glimpse of this in the Revelation. Revelation 21, 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Do you notice how both of those ideas from verse 6 are connected? Where the singular inhabitant of Zion, the bride of Christ, and God dwelling together in the midst of his people. That is a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. It is a picture of God's anger removed. Death fleeing away. No more sorrows and pains. No more mourning. It is a time of comfort. Because God is no longer angry. The death And the resurrection of his son was what made all that possible. In his resurrection, we have the guarantee that what we sing will one day come to pass. Then on that day, you will shout and sing for joy. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. God and Father, we give you thanks that in Jesus' death, your anger has turned away. And in his resurrection, you have comforted us. We will trust in you and not be afraid. For you are our strength and song and have become our salvation. May we this day of celebration draw water from the wells of salvation. So mark us as a church that in gratitude and worship, we may make known the glorious gospel of grace so that all the nations may know and turn and join with us in grateful worship of our King. We sing praise to you, O Lord, the Lord in our midst, for you have done gloriously through Jesus Christ our Lord, whose resurrection brought us from the judgment of your anger to the comfort of your love. It's in his name we pray, and amen.